Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast, and Happy New Year. This is George, and Patrick and I appreciate your joining with us one last time here in 2018. As you're going to hear us explain at the opening of the podcast today, we are going to be spreading out our end-of-the-year retrospective and our beginning-of-the-year introduction over the course of the next three podcasts, and we'll talk more about that once we actually begin the program here in just a minute. But I wanted to mention, if you do have suggestions for different things that we do in 2019, different people we interview, different topics we discuss, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to us and let us know what those are. In fact, there's already three different topics that we have on tap for the first part of 2019 that are based on things that listeners have suggested to us. So you can drop me an email at george at itlcoaching.com. You can send one to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. Or you can send one to the podcast generally, pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. Let's get on with our favorite moments of 2018. everybody and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. This is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. We are knocking on the door of a new year, knocking on the door of 2019. And with that in mind, we're going to be today talking a little bit about 2018 right? That's right. Oh, very good. If you're not listening to us until the new year, if it's 2019 already for you, happy new year to everybody. Um, we're recording this and we're releasing this on the 30th of December. So New Year's Eve is tomorrow. New Year's Day is Tuesday. Uh, we hope that everybody's had a very, very happy holiday season. Um, we're going to do a little bit different than what we've done in the past as far as retrospectives and all that sort of thing go. So Patrick, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so today what we're going to do is we're going to look back on some of our favorite stories from the year. And by stories, we mean stories, you know, about, you know, about running and about the endurance community in general. Um, to kind of just go through, you know, some of the ups and downs of the year and some of the, the biggest stories or the things that we're going to look back, the stories that are going to kind of be on top of our mind when we look back on 2018, right? So, so last year when we, when we did the kind of retrospective podcast, we looked back on our own kind of personal lives and our own individual journeys as runners and as athletes. But this year we're going to look at kind of the more of the big picture perspective. Mm-hmm. And we're going to look at, you know, what stories really dominated 2018 from, you know, the standpoint of the entire running community or the entire endurance community. Mm-hmm. And, and as we often do for this podcast, for this particular installment of the podcast, uh, Patrick will be offering his top three. I'll be offering my top three. So mm-hmm. there you go. And even though I think you're going to go first today because... I ran faster than you did in our fall marathons. That's right. And then I, I picked first, so to speak. Um, exactly. Um, but then this is only the first of a couple of installments of our sort of wrapping up 2018 and kicking off 2019, right? That's exactly right. So today we're going to look back at kind of the, the big picture stories, right? The stories that you read about in, in Runner's World or even the New York Times, so to speak. Um, and then the next two installments are going to be about, you know, how to set resolutions and how to set goals for the upcoming year right and then for those of you who are maybe newer to to marathoning or to, to running or to try to running or completing triathlons in general how to get started on a program yeah and how to you know go from maybe being a casual jogger to being a competitive runner right. how to go from being somebody who maybe does not have a regular routine to someone who consistently knocks out their workouts um like clockwork right so that's kind of our, our three-part you know New Year um, series where today we look back on the kind of the big picture stories that dominated headlines in the endurance community. Then we're going to look at, you know, how to set goals in general. And then we're going to look at, okay, logistically, how do you set yourself up to complete the program in 2019 in a way that, that really helps you meet your goals? Right on, right on. And so that would be January 6th. Sunday, January 6th is going to be about resolutions. And then January 13th will all be about getting started and, and, um, for those of you who are turning over a new leaf, or for those of you who want to get a little bit more consistent over the course of the new year, uh, we'll be talking about that on January 13th. Um, and so, so yeah, that's kind of our program notes coming up over the course of the next couple of weeks. Now, um, let's hop right into this one if you want. You ready? Let's do it. All right, cool. So uh, you're starting us off with the first story, right? 
Right, and so for my stories, I'm actually been kind of to cluster them together into into themes, so to speak. Okay. And my first story is is the release of the Nike Vaporflies, mm-hmm. um, and really shoes in general, and how running shoes in general have really come along and um, propel the discussion forward in terms of what makes a runner run fast and what is it that inhibits a runner at the end of a race mm-hmm. beyond just fatigue, mm-hmm. right? So for those of you who listen to this podcast. You probably already know that George and I have a mild obsession with the Vaporflies. <laughs> we are fascinated the, by... The, the running community has a mild obsession with the Vaporflies. Yeah. So I, I, feel, I feel like we're just representatives of a much larger movement. But yeah, keep going. There we go. I, I like that answer better. Um, but but this year, the Vaporflies were released with the promise of improving a runner's time by about 4%. Right? Hence the name, Vaporfly 4%. Efficiency by 4%. Time would be about 1.5%. But yeah, keep going. Correct. Uh, thank you. And then you and I kind of came to the conclusion that we, you know, if it were to improve time, as you said, it would improve time by about one to one and a half percent. Mm. Um, but it it really kind of not only did the shoes, A, make a lot of people run faster or run more efficiently, it also really kicked off a conversation about what are, what are running shoes for? Mm-hmm. Why do we have them? How do they help us? And what is their path moving forward? I mean, you know, a defining feature of you know, kind of the human race in general is we constantly make new tools that improve our performance through new technologies, um, et cetera. And, you know, running shoes are no different. I mean, in, in the cycling community, I'm sure they have many similar discussions with, you know, how how fast can a bicycle make you or how much faster can right. a nicer bicycle Wheels, make you. frame shape, frame weight, things like that. And this yeah. is the first time that that conversation has really entered the, the running community. Huh. Yeah. Um, uh, on this scale, at least, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it might have been there in the 70s with the invention of Nike, but honestly, that was pre-internet, so it was, you know, just a different landscape and a different kind of social and communications forum. So that, to me, is the, the biggest story is that the release of the, the Nike Vaporfly, and then not just the release of the Vaporflies themselves, but also other companies' reaction to them. Yeah. Right? Like, once they were released and once there was some pretty hard evidence or, or some relatively hard evidence that they did indeed, you know, enhance efficiency... Then it forced other companies to kind of step up and release a, a better product. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Hoka's. Um, Adidas is probably going to come out with another one here shortly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that to me is, is, is the big st- one of the big stories of 2018 to think about is how this was the year where we really started to rethink human performance and what is possible um, you know, in, in the running community and how much faster you can run. Via footwear. Via footwear, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's an interesting one to consider. I, I you know, we, we had our last episode was about the Vaporfly 4%, mm-hmm. and, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about some of the reaction to that and some of the, the conversations we've had uh, after posting that that podcast here in just a minute. But um, I do think you're right. I think that, that a couple of years ago on this podcast, one of the very first episodes of the podcast, we interviewed Will Kramer, um, who at mm-hmm. the time was the manager of Westride. Mm-hmm. Um, and Will has, has since moved to Brooklyn, and I think he's managing a, a, a running store there. And I, in fact, you and I can talk about this later. I was thinking about trying to bring him back on the, uh, the show again. But he, one of the things he said in the interview then, and this is two years ago, this is um, almost three years ago, this is you know, early 2016, he said a big change that's taken place over the course of the past decade in the shoe industry, in the in the gear industry, is that we've gone away from the idea that you're prescribing a shoe to fix somebody's running in such a way that, that it will keep them uninjured. So in other words, it used to be about, okay, you need to put, wear this right, this, this particular type of shoe, and it's going to fix the way that your foot hits the ground mm-hmm. with the goal being that you're not going to get injured. Right. That, that was totally the approach. It and used it, to be, oh, you're an overpronator. Right. So, right. You yeah. Know, yeah, and it was totally the on the, the pronation, supination paradigm, right? right? And and so along with minimalism and barefoot running and all that sort of thing, um, eventually this pendulum swung back away from the whole minimal thing, but, but the lasting effect on the shoe industry was, okay, we're no longer prescribing shoes to try and change the way you run. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's sort of interesting. It, it, it seems like over the course of the past year with the introduction of the Vaporfly, now it's not just we're not giving you shoes to change the way you run, but we're actually going to give you shoes that are going to to profoundly make you faster. And and and, it, and it's different from just regular old racing flats. Um, you know, it's it's always been believed. You know, it's been believed for years and years and years. Okay, so you wear lighter shoes when you go out and race, and it's going to make you more efficient. It's going to make you faster. I mean, you and I have both been wearing racing flats in races for decades, right? But 
the idea that you're actually going to put on a pair of racing shoes and that racing shoe is going to do something to the way that you run that's actually going to make you more efficient and thereby faster, I do feel like that's different. Um, and that's, that's a different approach and a different idea. Um, at the very least, um, the Vaporfly 4% punted the ball down the field a lot farther. Mm-hmm. Um, at the very least, it was like, all right, well, yeah, we're kind of doing a few things like changing the outsoles or putting more grooves in the shoe or change the lacing system or something like that to make you faster. And this is like, whoa, bang, ball's way down the field now. Now you're 4% more efficient and you're 100% faster, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I do feel like the conversation around racing flats has changed. You know, people are, are at least myself, I, I'm no longer necessarily going to be satisfied with a racing flat that's just lighter. Right. You know, like it has to actually promise to make me perform better, not just by virtue of being lighter, because by being lighter, you do become more efficient and be faster, but it has to offer something in addition to that. Right. Um, and I feel like that's kind of where, where the, what the Vaporfly has done to the conversation. For sure. And to your point, they are, they released a product that did not improve incrementally, but as you said, yeah. really threw the ball down the field, right? Yeah. So we're going to rethink you know, everything, so to speak. We're not just going to make it lighter. We're going to put in a carbon plate. Right. And we're going to really kind of... And this weird foam. Right, and, yeah. and a new foam. And we're going to rethink almost from scratch what a running shoe or a racing shoe should and can look like. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And what it's supposed to do. Because, because um, and, and this is this kind of ties into some of the stuff that people have had a conversation with me about um, after our podcast released on it. They were like, oh, when I put them on, I felt I felt really springy and light and stuff like that. And I'm like, have you ever run racing flats before? They're like, well, no. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you always feel that way in racing flats. You're always going to feel lighter and, and springier in racing flats. And so um, just putting these on, if you're like, oh, yeah, they totally made a difference. Well, any racing flats would make that particular sort of difference. Like what these are supposed to do is in the latter stages of a long race of a marathon, they're supposed to make you more efficient. And they, they keep you from falling apart in, in the latter stages of a race. We, like, we, like we talked about in the last episode, we don't know exactly how they do that yet, but, but that's what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But like, even like that being the goal, that's weird. That's different. That, yeah. and, and it's paradigm shifting potentially. Um, and so the, the other conversation, by the way, that I had a lot of over the course of the last little while here, um, and I actually initiated this conversation in two different places, was um, looking at how many people won big races and set records wearing the Vaporflies. Is that because of the shoes or is that just Nike being dominant Nike, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you look at, and we talked about this in the last one, if you look at the, the World Marathon Majors, 18 podiums on the men's side. 12 of them went to guys wearing the Vaporflies, uh, including four wins. Um, you look on the women's side, 18 podiums, 11 of them went to people wearing the Vaporflies, uh, including three wins, right? Um, I actually went back to 2017. In 2017, the numbers were slightly lower, but similar. I think it was three wins and three wins, um, and it was something like 10 podiums and 10 podiums. And so they're slightly smaller, but they're similar. But I wonder if you went back to 2016... And you didn't say, okay, we're going to look at the Vaporflies. We're just going to look at the Nike-sponsored runners. Would you get a similar number just because Nike tends to get the best athletes? Um, And so is it that Nike's getting the best athletes, or is it their shoes, in fact, do make people significantly faster? Um, And it's funny because I I, I started that in a forum in letsrun.com, and I was hoping that like people in letsrun.com, somebody would run with it, and they would actually do the research because you could do that research, right? Um, I was hoping someone would do the research, and, and nobody took me up on it. But interestingly, all the responses on Let'sRoam.com were like, it's the shoes, it's the shoes, it's the shoes, it's the shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started that conversation on a Facebook group I'm in called Running Shoe Geeks or something like that. And, I might be a part of that group as well. <laughs> and, and interestingly enough, on that one, which and it's Running Shoe Geeks, you think those people would be like, it's the shoes, it's the shoes. They had the opposite reaction. They're like, no, it's Nike, it's Nike, it's Nike. Nike always gets the best people. Um, in every sport, not just in running, but in tennis and in golf and everything else, mm-hmm. right? And so, okay. so, so it's not actually the shoes; it's just Nike. And so, if Nike were to release some other shoe next to you know the some some other shoe next to you look like elf shoes, people wear that and 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 they'd still win, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, not a whole lot of settlement on that issue yet. <laughs> yeah. But but anyway, um, so so yeah, some interesting conversations you know post our episode about vapor flies, and I and I do think that yeah, they've created a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Very good. Very good. 
Um, my turn? Yep. Okay, we should probably mention, and actually we, should, we, we meant to mention this at the outset, that, that when you and I were talking about, okay, what are we going to do for this episode, we said, all right, we can't say anything more about Elliot Kipchoge, and we can't say anything more about Patrick Lane and Daniela Reef. <laughs> right? right? And so, and, and last year, you know, it was funny, it, and when we did our retrospective last year, I said, okay, I'm going to talk about my, my the best performances of the year, and I talked about the best performances of the year, or what I thought were the two best performances of the year, and, and a listener wrote me afterwards and said, anybody who listens to your podcast would have known that you would have said that those are the best two performances of the year. Uh, and I was like, okay. And in some ways, that's a compliment, but in other ways, it's like, it's like, well, I'm I'm getting a little bit too predictable here. So, so you and I actually said, all right, we're not going to spend the whole time talking about Elliot Kipchoge or about Patrick Lang and Danielle Reed because we already talked about them and they were fantastic. And I encourage everybody to go back and listen to those installments of the podcast. Um, but it's sort of like you know, time man of the year or time person of the year. Um, I saw a conversation or a special with them one time, and they said we could make the president of the United States the person of the year every single year. Because the argument could be made that the President of the United States influences the news and world events more heavily than any other person mm-hmm. that we cover every single year. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to do that because that's uncreative. And so, so yeah, we weren't going to spend the, our entire yearly retrospective here talking about Elliot Kipchoge in Berlin and talking about Patrick Lang and Daniela Reif, right? So just as an FYI, <laughs> right? Um, so one thing I wanted to talk about, uh, my first thing here, um, is something that from August 28th that we didn't talk about on the podcast that maybe we should have talked about on the podcast. And it was a guy named Carol Saab. He's 28 years old. He's from Ghent, Belgium, uh, which is actually a big cycling hub, as a matter of fact. Um, and uh, he set a new Appalachian Trail through record this past summer. Um, the fastest known times on the Appalachian Trail have really gotten a lot of attention over the course of the last little while. Um, and I talked about Carl Meltzer on here before when he set the record. And then a lot of people read Scott Yurick's book, which is called North, which is mm-hmm. about how he traveled north on the Appalachian Trail uh, and set the fastest time a couple of years ago. Well, uh, Carol Saab, speaking of paradigm shifting, um, he reached Maine, uh, the, the terminus of the trail, the northern terminus of the trail, in a total of 41 days, 7 hours, and 39 minutes, breaking the previous record by about 4 days, which well, is incredible. <laughs> whenever you drop a record by about 10%. Yeah, that's, which is exactly what he did. Yeah, holy smokes. Yeah. So, okay, how many miles is that per day? It's, it's, about, uh, it's, it's, about, it's about 52 miles a day. 52 miles a day. Yeah, yeah. And, and I didn't do the exact math on it here, but but that's it's right about 3,000 miles, right about 41 days. So, yeah, it's actually even a little bit more than that. I was honestly expecting you to say like 25. So, no. No, it's 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 over 50 miles a day. Good yeah, gosh. Yeah, he did. And so so he's he's kind of trudging, walking most of it, you know, kind of jogging some of it, um, that sort of thing, but but just kind of constant forward motion for just sort short of six weeks. And Scott Yurick, okay, you've heard of Scott Yurick. Yep. Yeah, most people, even if you don't follow ultra running, if you're a fan of endurance sports, you've heard of Scott Yurick. Scott Yurick did it in 45 days and set the record at the time, right? Did it in over 45 days. Carl Meltzer, who's won more 100-mile races than any person, beat Scott Yurick's record by like a few hours, mm-hmm. literally. Um, and then uh, Scott or Carl Meltzer's record was beaten by uh, Joe uh, McConaughey, um, and he did 45 days, 12 hours, and 15 minutes. And that was the record. And then here comes Carol Saab from Belgium. And he slices more than four days off the record. And, and puts it at 41 days, 7 hours, and 39 minutes. That's mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that we didn't talk about. Um, he, uh, he actually just, you know, we always talk about finishing strong. He did the last 90 miles in a row. <laughs> what? Like, how do you... I? When you said that, I just kept thinking of all of the like corporate posters that you see like in an office that are like go the extra mile. Right, some yeah. guy like running up a mountain, some right. actor running up a mountain. Right. That is taking go the extra mile, like, I mean to the yeah. nth degree. Oh yeah, times ninety, literally. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he he. They they asked him about that, and he said, "I was smelling the barn," which I guess is like a Belgian thing for for you know feeling the finish line or whatever. Yeah. I was smelling the barn. It would have been a short sleep anyway because I wanted to finish. And I wanted to break the six weeks barrier too. Um, and so yeah, he ended up going through the night on his last night and just doing ninety miles outright. Mm-hmm. Um, and as somebody who is who has toyed with the idea of doing a one hundred mile race. You know, the idea of doing 90 miles in a row at the tail end of a 
yeah. know, six week long journey. On day forty one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, so he now holds the Appalachian Trail speed record and the Pacific Coast Trail speed record. And so, like both ends of, of the United States here um, are, are now uh, the records are now owned by this particular Belgian. Um, he said that one of the keys was that he got his crew. Um, and that he did a really good job with this crew. The Pacific Crest Trail is not quite as difficult, and it's not quite as long as the Appalachian Trail. And so he said he learned a few things from that, and he really got his crew on board with them. Um, he had about 10,000 calories a day, um, and his crew was pretty instrumental in making sure that he was getting all of those calories here. Uh, uh, just he, out of curiosity, was he, how was he eating those meals? Was he breaking up into five, six meals a day? Of- he said, so what he said is he, he said, at first you crave carbs, and then that shifts to fat. And he said, and I was eating pizza, potato chips, lots of candy, M&Ms, granola bars, and things like that. I usually ate on the uphills so I didn't waste time. So he's moving as he's doing right. it. Right. Yeah. Um, I read a, uh, a book a few years ago by a guy named Marshall Ulrich. Mm-hmm. Um, about his running across the United States. And he was trying to do it as fast as he could. And he did about the same amount, too. He did about 50 miles a day, but it was on the roads. Um, and uh, he talked about how he, he didn't drink any water the whole trip um, because he didn't want to waste stomach space on something that didn't have calories in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so he drank zero water the whole time. Um, one other thing he mentioned with his crew, his brother-in-law is a dentist. Um, and his brother-in-law helped him with dental hygiene because he said, you, you eat all this kind of like sugary stuff. Yeah. And it can mess up your teeth. I mean, and you don't think about that for a 100-mile race or certainly for a marathon or something like that. But the dude was out for six weeks, um, and it can, mess, it can mess up your teeth. So, yeah, I'll actually build on that. Um, uh, endurance athletes in general and endurance athletes specifically are kind of known among the like, dentistry community, whatever Dentistry community, that, yeah. For, for having the worst teeth. <laughs> um, once you kind of control for socioeconomic status um, and, you know, access to, you know, dental care... I, and I've actually heard that from several dentists, and they they all say the same thing. It's because you guys chug Gatorade and gels all the time, and, and there's almost nothing worse than that. All right, good um, to know. So it's kind of interesting that you know, in, in a way, we have the healthiest body, but then the Worst least teeth. healthy teeth. Yeah. Well, it's 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 funny you say that. So next week, as we said in our opening program notes here, we're gonna be talking about resolutions, and I have a tooth-related resolution. All right. That I will share next week. So, yeah. Um, one other thing that he also said, and this is the last quotation I'll have him, he talked about how he didn't have any injuries along the way, which is super impressive. Um, and he said, I had talked to Joe, to Carl, to Scott, the three people we mentioned already, Joe McConaughey, uh, uh, Carl Meltzer, and Scott Yurick. I had talked to Joe, Carl, and Scott, and Jennifer Sfar Davis, who is the women's record holder, and she mm-hmm. actually held the overall record before Scott Yurick wrote it. Before and during the trip, and they gave me advice, and every now and then I heard from them as I was going. Carl said to ice my shins to prevent shin splints because I get those easily, so I ice them every night. Um, the interesting thing about that to me, well, first of all, obviously they didn't have any injuries. I mean, that's really impressive. And then he was actually prehabbing to ensure that he didn't get injuries, which is um, uh, super important as well. The most fascinating thing about that to me, though, is that he's talking to the people whose record he's beating. Um, and I think that's such an ultra-community thing. You know, an endurance community at large, but particularly inside the ultra community, here he is beating the crap out of Joe McConaughey's record, and he's talking to him along the way. And Joe's, like, helping him out, yeah. right? When when Carl Meltzer broke Scott Urich's record, Scott Urich ran with him for part of the time and paced him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's incredible to me. I mean, imagine Elliot Kipchoge talking to whoever, saying, oh, yeah, if you want to break my record, here's what you need to do. Elliot Kipchoge's a great guy, but it's hard to imagine him doing that, <laughs> right. you know? Um, it's hard to imagine him saying, here, this is what you need to do in order to break my record. Um, and, and not just saying, hey, you need to train, but like giving tips and tricks and, and helping him out, helping folks out. Um, that's hard to imagine. But that's the ultra community. So, yeah. Yeah, and I'll take it even one step further. So we talked about how, you know, in the running community, we do tend to kind of band together and help each other. Probably not to the extent that we want to break other people to break our records. Could you imagine like in football? <laughs> or or baseball yeah. or basketball yeah. where like literally Michael Jordan's entire Hall of Fame speech was how nobody's as good as him and yeah. even people who have broken his records have done so yeah, <laughs> superficially you know um, and that really kind of speaks to the the ultra community's kind of um, I don't know how to say it a band of brotherhood that's not the right word because it's yeah. like gender neutral but the point is that it's it's definitely a community where people come together I mean how many times has somebody said hey I completed a hundred mile race and you now had mad respect for them mm. And I think that kind of is, is why there, there's such a kind of collective respect among the ultra community where 
you know, they want to help each other and they want to yeah. see each other improve and kind yeah. of continue to push the envelope and continue to move the ball forward. Yeah. To use an analogy you used earlier with the, the vapor flies. Yeah. And I, and I, I submit, um, and, and I've talked about this before and we've talked a lot on this podcast before about, about the other elements of, of running. Mm-hmm. Um, the other things you get from running besides being physically fit and mm-hmm. competitive outlet, the, the enriching nature of endurance sports. Right, you and I have talked a lot about that, and I think I submit that the reason why there is so, so more of a, a band of brotherhood and sisterhood here is is because we all appreciate that. Um, we all appreciate the enriching nature of endurance sports, and and hey, if somebody else does it, even if they're going to be breaking my records, it's going to make them a better person, which in turn is going to make the world a better place. Um, and so I, I submit that, that that's actually born out of this this shared belief that we have that that running creates better people because mm-hmm. um, i very much believe that that, yeah. that that endurance sports make you a stronger better uh more caring more compassionate more critical more thoughtful person mm-hmm. um, and i think all of those things improve the world um all right your turn all right my uh number two story for the year is um regarding the boston marathon right on. specifically that um kind of previously unheralded runners and it taken center stage. Mm-hmm. Specifically, I'm talking about Sarah Sellers and Yuki Kawauchi. Yeah. Favorite of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> first mentioned on this episode last year when that's we look right. back at 2017. Right. Um, and that to me is is such a, an interesting um, story, not only because those two individuals specifically, you know, Sarah Sellers placing second, I believe, in the women and, and Yuki Kawauchi, you know, winning for the men. Not only did those individuals really kind of have inspirational performances. I mean, she's a nurse, for goodness sake, and he's a teacher, mm-hmm. and then be professional athletes. Yeah. But also... She, she, was, she was unsponsored. She didn't, have a, she didn't have a suit contract at the time. Right, exactly. I mean, not only did those individuals um, perf- you know, perform extraordinary feats, so to speak, but it really also kind of highlighted the Boston Marathon. It has almost become, in many ways, the Super Bowl of the amateur athlete or the weekend warrior, um, whatever you want to call it. And... To me, when those two performances really kind of highlighted that changing nature of that race specifically, um, and really kind of highlighted the you know growing amount of, of of individuals who you know may not be sponsored athletes, they may have you know full time jobs outside of running, but they still are able to perform at an extremely high level. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that you know the Boston Marathon has, um, and even Des Linden winning. Um, I mean, she's a professional runner and she has been for a long time and she's great and she's well accomplished. I mean, she's run in the very low two twenties. Um, she'd finished second at Boston. Right. Um, and so, um, but even she has kind of this more working class everyday person type image. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I do think there's something interesting and unique about the Boston marathon that it has this sort of working class image. And maybe I'm just thinking that because I just finished reading uh, uh, Bill Rogers' uh, autobiography, and I'm currently reading the latest book by Andy Burfoot, who won back in 1968. But, um, but, but I do think it kind of has that image, and I appreciate that about it. I think it's very cool in that regard. Um, yeah, the Boston Marathon, obviously 2018 is going to go down in the annals of, of the Boston Marathon as... as that year, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that year with all the driving wind and and the uh, the 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 rain and hail and sleet and ugliness. Um, I mean, even to start our run this morning, uh, it was like fifty and raining, yeah. and I looked at Eddie and I was like, "Well, this isn't Boston, so we're right. good to go." We've, yeah, we've faced worse. Yeah, no kidding. The um, the the Boston Marathon, I think too. It's it's worth mentioning. What was what else was I going to say about? It? I mean, I I think Des Linden's win at the Boston Marathon is kind of one of the Big moments of 2018 for sure. Um, um, I uh, I should have mentioned this. Um, I met Des London. I'd never met her before. Mm-hmm. I met her at the Philadelphia Marathon. Um, she and Mev Kafleski were there. And when we were talking about our race reports, I, I I can't believe I didn't mention this, but I actually obtained for the podcast an exclusive interview with Mev Kafleski at the finish line of the Philadelphia Marathon. Did you really? I did. So I crossed the finish line. I'm bent over, breathing hard. I'm excited about my performance, but I'm pleasantly exhausted. I'm bent over, breathing hard. And and uh, the volunteer comes up to me, puts the metal around my neck, and goes, are you okay? And I went, yeah, I'm just old. <laughs> um, and, uh, and and I look up, and the volunteer is Meb Kofleski. And I was like, you're, you're old too. And, and 
I was kind of flustered for a second and my mouth is sort of frozen and I'm kind of trying to talk to him for an instant and this other guy crosses the finish line, runs into me and knocks me into him and it was kind of this cluster for just a second. And I and I said, are you coming back? So this is where the interview starts. Okay. And I said, are you coming back? Because there's these rumors about him you know, making a comeback and trying to qualify for yet another Olympic team in 2020. Um, and, and he kind of, he didn't understand me because my mouth was frozen and I was kind of out of breath. And like I said, it was a little bit chaotic there. Um, and, and he goes, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, and just kind of nods his head. And I went, are you coming back? And he goes, oh, oh yeah, no. <laughs> so you heard it here first. Thanks to our finish line exclusive interview with, uh, with Mev Kapleski at the finish line of the Philadelphia Marathon. He is not coming back. Um, course we could be totally wrong about that but but we'll see um, we'll take it yeah yeah and i'm sure you know he he if he does decide to come back he's gonna have in the back of his mind well i told that guy at the finish line of the philadelphia marathon that i wasn't gonna come back but that, um, that other guy who was just old <laughs> yeah right yeah um but uh but anyway so yeah i got to meet both of them at the uh both both boston marathon winners now so very good very good um all right all right you're number two um my number two um I'm going to kind of stick in the uh, in the ultra world here, and um, I think it's kind of by by accident that I ended up having two ultra ones, um, and and maybe this is an indication of where my head is. I don't know. Um, we're going to talk about goals and resolutions for 2019 um, next podcast, but um, is and that's to talk about uh, something very recently here, December 8th and 9th, so only a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago. Um, uh, Camille Heron, uh, won the desert solstice invitational in Phoenix, Arizona. Now the ultra world's kind of weird, um, in that everything is so low key and even the things that aren't low key are really low key. And so this literally was this event in Phoenix, Arizona around the track at central high school in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 24 hour race. Uh, and Camille Heron, who we've talked about before on this on this podcast, she uh, she showed up or she she won the Comrades Marathon last year. Um, earlier in the year this year, she ran twelve forty two um, in a road one hundred um, mile race, uh, and that's the fastest that any woman has ever run a uh, hundred miles on the road. Twelve forty two is wicked fast for hundred miles. Um, but uh, she she showed up for the race um, mm-hmm. and. Took off around the track for 24 hours worth of running laps around the track there at Central High School in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, by the end of it, when they fired the gun and she was done, she had run 162.9 miles in 24 hours, setting a new 24-hour world record there. Uh, the previous 24-hour world record was 161.55 miles, so she just barely beat it by you know a little bit over a mile by uh, about six laps. Uh, it was held by a woman named uh, Patricia Beresnoska uh, from Poland. Um, along the way, she passed the 100-mile mark in 13.25, and even though that's 40 minutes slower than what she did on the road, it's the world record of 100 miles on the track. Um, beat that by about 20 minutes. That had been held by a woman named Gina Slaby. Um, and in total, she ran more than 650 laps uh, around the track there, 400-meter uh, track, just like all the rest of the tracks where we have our track workouts on Tuesday morning and everything else. Uh, and that's an average mile pace of 8.40 throughout 24 hours on the track. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, in, in ultra running, they, they take into account all the time that you're stopped. So if she stopped in changing her shoes, which she did twice, um, if she stopped in changing her shoes, that, that gets calculated in. And so her actual moving pace was faster than 8.40. Um, but, but she averaged about, uh, what's that, two, two minutes and 10 seconds per lap. Uh, for 24 hours for 650 laps over the course of, of December 8th and 9th here. So uh, congrats to her. Uh, a couple other kind of quick things to say about it again. Uh, I, like I said, she meant she changed uh, shoes twice. She wore two different pairs of Vaporfly 4% shoes. Um, Interesting. So yeah, she, she wore one pair and then, well, I mean, we talked about how fragile they are, right? <laughs> well, what I was going to ask too is... <laughs> she wore out, she, she literally ran the shoe through its entire life in a single race. <laughs> yeah, almost like uh, Bowerman's original wall so, right? shoes. Yeah. But what I was going to ask too is, you know, I don't know how long I could hold up in those shoes because yeah. they don't provide much stability. Right. Um, and we talked about that before. They provide enough stability. Mm-hmm. So like, I, I felt like I could get through the marathon. I'm not sure how much... The, the final couple miles were, hey, I've just it's a yeah. marathon, you're gonna hurt. And how much was the shoes? Right. I just don't know. It's kind of, right. it's one of those things. You only run one marathon a, a right. season, so it's hard to really have a high sample size. I, I almost can imagine running, yeah. especially if she was running and if she was having to turn at all. Yes, well, she was turning on the track. She yeah, was turning twice, twice, twice every quarter mile. That those yeah. do not seem like the shoes to wear for. Yeah. 
Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. No, you and I had talked about how the shoes don't turn well. No. And that you, it's kind of like running on a, on a rail. It's funny. Somebody reached out to us after the, uh, the Vaporfly podcast and said, yeah, I saw a guy at Club Nationals Cross Country wearing those shoes. And I, I, was, I was like, all right, that's somebody who clearly has drank way too much Kool-Aid regarding the Vaporfly 4%. Yeah. If you think that it, in a cross-country race they're going to make you 4% fat or 4% more efficient, no. Not only was it a 10K, which, you know, they're not really made for 10Ks for races that short, um, but all the turning um, and you're on grass. So you're, and I mean, the whole point of the, like, spring in the carpet is to bounce off the asphalt, yeah, not yeah. grass. And yeah, it's, the, the, it's changing the way your foot levers off the ground. And, and your foot never levers off the ground the same way in cross-country. That's one of the reasons why it's so hard. Um, so, anyway. Um, but, yeah, shout-out to Alan Black for, for mentioning that clown who's doing that. But, anyway. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, she wore two different pairs of Vaporfly 4%. And then she finished up in a pair of Pegasus Turbo. Okay. Um, which is kind of this uh, souped-up pair of Air Pegasus that, that Nike makes as well. She's sponsored by Nike. Um, she actually got a lot of attention, too. Um, and for some reason, folks are really into this, but in the last five or six hours, as she was starting to really get tired, obviously, uh, she drank a little bit of beer. She said she had some Rogue Dead Guy Ale, which, as it happens, is my favorite beer. Um, it's from Oregon. Um, and, uh, and she had some tacos from Taco Bell. That does not seem like the nutrition plan I would have chosen. Yeah, no, not me either. Um, but you know, when you get so late into a race, I mean, you just, and, and you feel like you need to take in calories, you just try and take in whatever calories you can. I mean, you know, we heard that with Carl Saab when he was talking about the, the mm-hmm. Appalachian Trail, but yeah, that, that, that doesn't necessarily be what I do either. But anyway, that's what she did. So, so congrats to her. Camille Heron, clearly a, a brilliant runner and, and a great 2018 with her. Uh, capping off her her year with a with a pretty phenomenal performance there at the Desert Solstice Invitational. Um, what else you got? All right, my final story or kind of takeaway from from 2018 is that it was announced that the Olympic marathon trials will be in Atlanta. Right on. And it's going to be awesome. <laughs> All right, so that's kind of a two part story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the second part is fairly short. <laughs> And objective, obviously. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Um, Research has been done to show it will be awesome. So first, it was. I mean, it was announced that Atlanta was going to be hosting the Atlanta, or it's going to be the the Olympic marathon trials. And it, I mean, huge kudos to Atlanta Track Club and Rich Kanoff for, for for kind of pulling that off and for you know making the sale to say, hey, Atlanta has the infrastructure in place mm-hmm. to host an event like this, and we have a big enough running community to support this. Yeah. Right? We have, I mean, runners, you know, all across the spectrum. We have Peachtree Road Race, which is the largest. 10K road race in the nation. Um, we have the Atlanta Track Club, which is huge and vibrant. Um, and we also have Mizuno located, who's, you know, North American headquarters are here in Atlanta, mm-hmm. who sponsors the Atlanta Track Club and would also help sponsor the, the marathon trials. Mm-hmm. So there was, you know, a, a lot of things going for the city of Atlanta. Um, we also have kind of the Olympic heritage from, from 96. And I, as someone who was, who was, who was from Atlanta... And always thought this was an underrated running community because, you know, we may not always have the fastest high school runners, um, but we always have had a huge, you know, number of people, amateur runners on the weekend. I mean, when you when you go to your, on Saturdays, you know, yes, a lot of us watch college football, but a lot of us also are out hitting the pavement and running. And that's a big deal. And when you move to other parts of the country, especially where it's much colder, you don't see that as often. Yeah. Um, where people spend their Saturdays playing sports instead of watching sports. Mm-hmm. Um, same with Sundays. Um, so, you know, that, that was a huge win. I cannot wait to, to, you know, be a part of that event and, you know, hopefully volunteer and kind of help put it on. And then the kind of the second part of that story, the, the, the part where I said it, how awesome it would be, was that we had over 150 people qualify for the Olympic trials at CIM alone. Right. That is phenomenal. Yeah. And we've talked about before on this podcast how – you know, American distance running has really gotten much deeper over the last few years, especially on the women's side. And that is a huge testament to the sport itself growing. And as, as you like to say, you know, the more 245 marathoners we have, the more 230 marathoners we have. The more 230 marathoners we have, the more 220 marathoners we have. Mm-hmm. Right up the chain. And it has been phenomenal to see this sport almost transform from in the 70s, if you've ever read Once a Runner, where it was like something that one or two people in a high school used to do, and there almost wasn't teams because there wasn't enough people to make a team, and mm-hmm. you were kind of an outcast for running, to when I was in high school where I would say we were about a half step up above like the lowest level of mm-hmm. you know, kind of 
you know, on the, on the social ladder, but there was only about five or six of us one, or seven one of, of us. The, one of the cross country teams I coached one time referred to themselves as the as the Hawaii of of high school athletics, um, and that that meaning that yeah we're part of the country but we're kind of off on our own. You know, that's a great <laughs> point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, Brookwood High School had a shirt that literally said on the front it said cross country and on the back end it said helping nerds make friends since 1981. <laughs> Because that's when the school was formed, or and that's, Brookwood, exactly and that's Brookwood, where they get two hundred people to come out for the team, and they've won multiple state championships. Right to to now, where you go to Kennesaw Mountain, you see like the Georgia Tech team. It's huge. I mean, yeah. it used to be yeah. seven or eight people. Yeah, you know, um, and that was it. Yeah, and I, I know that all seems kind of far fetched and all tangential, but I think that it, it all kind of points to the sport growing in popularity and more and more people discovering that there really is more to this than just putting one foot in front of the other. Or running in circles over and over again. That there really is a lot to be gained, and there's a growing appreciation for all that goes into this sport. You know, it's not always the the best sport on television because you can't see, you know, the muscles contracting quite so much. Mm. You don't see the fatigue right. um, quite as clearly as you do in, in other sports or mm. the, the same constraints you would. Mm. Whereas, like a football, you see a defender tackling the the mm. offensive player. Um, but more and more in this country, we are kind of becoming more and more of a running nation, mm-hmm. and in, and Atlanta's kind of leading that charge, which I think is very right interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'm with that. No, I've always said that I thought Atlanta was underrated as a, as a running city as well. Um, that I, I think I think Atlanta is a great place to run, and even even the things that that we say make it worse. You know, heat, hills, humidity. Um, you know what? Heat and humidity. You can run 365 days a year in Atlanta. Um, yeah. And my sister, who I talked about a lot on the Philadelphia podcast, she lives in Northern Virginia, which is not Minnesota, which is right. Northern Virginia. And she's already making plans for the winter about how am I going to make this happen during the winter? Because she, she can't go out and plan to run every single day if she wanted to, like, like I could. Right. Um, and, and she's, like I said, she's not in Canada. She's only in Northern Virginia. Um, and, then, and then the hills, I, you know... We have strong runners here because we have a lot of hills, and, mm-hmm. and it makes for a more interesting place to run and better place to run. The city of Atlanta itself, even. Um, the city of Atlanta itself, you can be running down the main thoroughfares in Atlanta. You take one turn, and you're in a quiet neighborhood. And I think it's very unique among cities for that. New York City, you're in the city the whole time. Yeah. Boston, you're pretty much in the city the whole time. Um, uh, Philadelphia, you're in the city the whole time. Um, Atlanta, you can be in the the densest part of the city and literally take one turn and you're in Ansley Park or mm-hmm. you're in Sherwood Forest or you're in, in um, Midtown or, or, or you know some other place where, where it's significantly less dense and, and, and nice. Yeah. And to your point too, I mean, they call Atlanta the city among trees for a reason, mm-hmm. right? If you hike up Stone Mountain and look across, you almost don't even see a lot of the, right. the buildings underneath because it's covered in trees. And that does help the running quality. Absolutely. You're not breathing in exhaust and you're not kind of running through the concrete jungle that, yeah. that you would be in most cities. Right and, and to your point about the weather, you know, as one who spent a few years at Purdue, which is, you know, about an hour or so south mm-hmm. of Chicago, mm-hmm. I mean, you, we had weeks where... We made it a joke where we would say, "All right, if it's four degrees outside, we have to run five miles." <laughs> like we literally said, "We'll run, we'll run the temperature," yeah. which is fine if you're doing nothing but easy runs. But I can assure you, there were no tempo runs in four yeah. degrees. Yeah, and I can also assure you, there was no twelve mile runs either. That like every run was 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 you know five five miles or less, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. I think I mentioned before when I lived in New Hampshire, I, I once looked at a at a weather report that said high today in the low to mid negative teens. I still don't even really entirely know what that means. Um, anyway, um, so that would be a great one to end on, but I, I got to go last, um, and so 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 I. But 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 there is a tie-in here. So the last piece that I want to talk about, the last piece of news I do want to talk about here. Uh, and by the way, before I move to move on, Atlanta Track Club, they are doing a, a race, and we don't normally plug races that aren't our races, but I'm gonna go ahead and plug this one. There's a race on March 2nd called the March to Gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's a one-time race so far as I know. Um, and it's where it's essentially the test event for the marathon, the Olympic trials mm-hmm. marathon course. And it's a multi-loop course that they're doing during the marathon and you get to run one loop. And so it's a weird distance. It's like 8.2 miles or something like that because they're running it three times plus during the Olympic trials and you get to do one loop around it. Um, and I'm definitely doing that race. Um, I might not race it even though I presume that I will, um, uh, we'll see what kind of shape I'm in come March 2nd, but but there's no way I would not do that race if I was in town. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I highly recommend that race for everybody because how often are you going to get the opportunity to, to run that course? I mean, it's just super cool. Um, so, all right. Uh, last thing we're going to talk about here is is British cycling. 
um, which is uh, a little bit off the beaten path or maybe something that, that, that folks saw but didn't entirely realize here. Um, the, the British cycling uh, team or, or, or cyclists from the country of Great Britain, I guess is the best, best way to put it, um, uh, is really on a high right now when it comes to Grand Tour cycling. Um, they won all three Grand Tours this year. Um, the, 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 the country of Great Britain did. And they became the first nation ever to win those three Grand Tours, the Vuelta a España, the Zero d'Italia, and the Tour de France in the same year with three different riders. Um, in the past, there's been there's been countries that have run it with two riders or even with one rider way back in the day. Um, but Chris Froome won the Giro d'Italia, Garant Thomas won the Tour de France, and Adam Yates won the Volta a España. First time in history that a nation has won the Volta, the Giro, and the Tour in the same year with three different riders. It's also the fifth straight Grand Tour for Great Britain if you go back to last year. Last year, the Tour de France was won by Chris Froome, and then the Volta a España was also won by Chris Froome. And then you go into the three for this year. So that's five straight uh, Grand Tour victories for Great Britain. Um, before 2018, Britain had never won the Giro d'Italia. This year was the first year they ever won it. Um, before 2017, the country had never won the Volta a España. So it's not like they have this long history of winning these races, right? Um, and then for, for Adam Yates, who won the Vuelta this year, and for Geraint Thomas, who won the Tour this year, this is the first time ever won Grand Tours. And so you want to talk about an ascendant group? <laughs> British cycling is pretty amazing right now, um, and they're, they're, they're definitely on the ascendance. Um, the only time in the post-war era when all three Grand Tours um, were up and running where a single nation won all three Grand Tours five times in succession was in 1963 and 1964 uh, by France with two different riders, Jean Cocotiel and Raymond Poulidor, who are very famous for those of you who, are, who know your history of cycling. Um, it's only two times that a country, a, a single country has won both are all three Grand Tours in the modern era. Um, uh, in the modern era, uh, 2008, Spain did it with Alberto Contador winning the Giro and the Volta, and Carlos Sastre winning the Tour. Um, and then that same stretch in 1964 with with Pulador and and with Anquetil from France. Um, and so, profoundly rare. Um, and like I said, the fact that they did it with three different riders um, is is. Uh, entirely unique. It's never been done before. Um, but to tie back into what we talked about just now with uh, with the with with Atlanta and with the linkage between club cyclists and rec recreational athletes and and with the top end here um, was a quotation from Simon Yates that I really appreciated. Um, and he said this long quotation quote I think the British cycling will continue on an upward trajectory. That's because a lot of it comes down to the nation embracing cycling as a mode of transport, not just as sport. If a hundred more people start using bikes, then one, then one or two might turn to racing. Thousands of people are getting into bikes instead of using cars or public transport. And now there's also phenomenal talent coming through the junior ranks. If I was a British junior racer now, I think I'd have a much harder time making it as a pro than I did because of all the talent that's there. The pool is so much bigger now. The Junior Tour of Wales, for example, when I was younger, would just get about a would just about get a full field and include some teams from overseas. Now they could run it two, maybe three times over, just with young British talent. That's a massive change. When I was young, there was just a couple of us. Mm -hmm. Unquote. Um, and so again, that pool is getting larger uh, in Great Britain, and it's pushing those uh, at the very top of British cycling. Um, not only to, to, to greater heights, but literally to, to heights that have never been seen before in cycling. Um, and so, yeah, a story you might have missed from 2018, but certainly one we wanted to, to draw attention to here at the tail end of the year. Thoughts on that? I know you're not a cycling fan, but... No, but I always find it fascinating, kind of the network effects coming to life in sports. Yeah. Right? So if you ever read the book Soccernomics, mm -hmm. um, it talked about how... I've heard of it. I haven't read it. it. But it was written by two kind of economic professors, and they had a chapter in there where they talked about how... Germany in soccer really was kind of the locus of power on the global stage, um, right? And you may, and for those of you who are soccer fans, may recall they won the World Cup not too long ago, and they've always been one of the big players, mm -hmm. right? Which is uh, which, and they're not like country like Brazil who could win just by brute force with the sheer number of people. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they're actually a, a smaller country, yet they would still kind of dominate the ranks because they just had a, a culture in place and kind of a network of coaches. They kind of work together and kind of as iron sharpens iron, gained a competitive advantage over other countries, other cultures, other approaches, other strategies. And it took some time because it didn't really start until the 90s in, in terms of their, their competitive advantage. But then it didn't really come to fruition until the 2000s or so. Mm -hmm. But you see that in a lot of sports. Like you talked about the Brits with cycling. 
And to me, it's just fascinating to kind of look at how kind of the, the, the macro forces at play, like being able to cycle around Britain, mm-hmm. you know, and having, you know, bike lanes mm-hmm. can lead to, you know, um, greater athletic performance later down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you see, you see shifts in talent. And football was another example where the power used to lay in the north where the southernmost you know NFL team was in Baltimore through like the 50s. And then, of course, now we look at college football, the power is obviously here in the south, right. you know, for, for all kinds of a variety of reasons. So I always find that stuff fascinating. And we kind of talk about that a little bit, too, with, um, with, with American marathon running, mm-hmm. you know, specifically with the women as, you know, women are kind of encouraged more and more to pursue athletic endeavors and to make it a priority in their life. You know, you see women are, are capable of, you know, performing feats that, you know, we maybe did not give them credit for, mm. so to speak. That's why we had over, what was it, 99 women qualify for the Olympic trials at yeah. CIM? Yeah. So that stuff to me is always fascinating to look at how kind of the, the, the big picture, you know, kind of outside bigger forces, you know, like, you know, the macroeconomic forces really do. The public policy forces. Yeah, really do. forces. Affect, yeah. you know, that happen outside of the stadium, outside of the athletic arena really have a big impact on the final outcome within the competition itself. Right on, right on. And I think that's a, that's a good note for us to end on, as it turns out. Because mm-hmm. as, as we're thinking about you know, what we want to accomplish and, and what we want to do in, in 2019, um, we're not just thinking about what we want to do, but we're also should be thinking about how we're contributing to, to a much larger sense and, and, in turn, making the world a better place. Um, all right, final words, Patrick? Uh, no, it's been fun. This is 2018, our first year of uh, full year of completing podcasts together. Right I've enjoyed it. Right on. Me too, Patrick. Uh, you you were you were a worthwhile addition to the podcast, and I, I appreciate you spending so much time with me over the course of uh, uh, of 2018. So, onward to 2019. Happy New Year, everyone. Thanks for joining us. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. Once again, you can reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.